Okay, so uh, how many are reading Colossians still? You're reading Colossians? All right, good, okay. And some of you are like... Mm. So uh, if, if maybe it hasn't been quite as faithful or consistent, now's a good time to hit the reset button and come back. It's a short book. It's a great book. I'm, I'm reading this uh, and, and loving it. You know, I get to study this. I get to prepare to teach, which is... I mean, can you think of a better job in the world to get to do that? But even even just reading it devotionally, I keep seeing things and, and going, oh, how come... How come I, I uh, haven't seen that before? And actually, Pastor Terry and I were talking at our, our staff meeting this last week, and I said, hey, have you, ever, have you ever thought about Colossians being a parallel to Romans 14? And uh, we had a great old talk about that, but I don't, it hadn't hit me that, that it, there is some parallels there. We'll talk about that in a moment today. But I'd invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, and I will start the PowerPoint here. And uh, we can get going. <coughs> Alan, can you run and get me a bottle of water real quick? Thank you. All right. So uh, our stu- the title of our study is Christ is First. This is a study of the person and work of Christ. And uh, we've come a long way in that first chapter learning about who Jesus is and, and what he's done. And uh, we've turned the corner now into chapter 2, and chapter 2 gets into the real heart of why Paul picked up his pen and wrote to this little church in uh, Colossae. Uh, you'll re- remember that there are um, there is an influence that's come to this little faithful church, and it's hard to piece together, but in some way these teachers are distracting the Colossians from the person and work of Christ. Thank you, sir. Uh, so that's what we get to learn about a little bit in chapter two. So let's uh, let's just we got a little bit of review and in, in your notes you see the first several points. Uh, there's no blanks because those are review from last time, and then we'll pick up kind of where we left off and we'll talk a little bit about how it fits with Romans 14. So um, so with that in mind, chapter two gets into uh, the real purpose for why he uh, wrote to them. Uh, he, start, he starts off in the first two verses just talking about his labor for the Colossians, and, and that reminds us to be encouraged by those who have labored for our behalf. Uh, he says there, I want you to know how great a struggle I've had on your behalf for those who are in Laodicea. And uh, he desires that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to the, all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. And so he he labors uh, to do that. This is a worthy uh, endeavor, and this is why we do what we do as Christians. Uh, In the second, uh, starting in verse 2, he reminds them that in Christ, that that this mystery, the, the understanding is all about understanding Christ and the mystery. And the reason that Christ is the source and the focus of the Christian life is, Paul argues here, that in Christ are hidden all the knowledge and wisdom that we need in our lives to walk with God. And that, that that's so indicting to us. We talked about this last time because I think we, even though we know that, we are prone to say, yes, I know Jesus is great and, and, and he's God. And, but, but then we turn to other sources of information primarily uh, instead of going to Christ first and, and being resolved that in him are really truly hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. And so he just reminds us to not be deceived 
by these persuasive messages. Look what he says in in verse 4. He says, I say this so that no one will delude you with a persuasive argument. For even though I'm absent in the body, nevertheless, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and stability of your faith. So so Paul dips his toe in the water of saying, hey, now that we've talked about Christ and I'm reminding you of who he is, you need to be careful when you start hearing from other people that are bringing a message that would add to the sufficiency of Christ or distract you from the focus of Christ. And so he says, don't be deceived, don't listen to that, don't buy into that. And and as we move through this text, you're going to get to understand a little bit of what this Colossian heresy is all about. Okay? Uh, number three, he said, this is, again, review, live out your faith in Christ, gratefully growing in the instruction you received when you first came to him. Verse six, therefore, as you received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. So you trust Christ when you come become a Christian, and then what do you do after that? Once you become a Christian, once you trust him, what do you do? What's he say? What's that? Yeah, you walk with him, right? You, you, you live out your faith in him. So, so rather than thinking of Jesus as the first signpost in the Christian life, and then you move on to the things, think of Jesus as the foundation upon which you stand in your Christian life. And, and you never move beyond him because he is the center of all of that. So he says, just as you have received him, so walk in him. And uh, do you guys do you guys know that, that the gospel is for Christians? Have you heard that before? I remember as a new Christian thinking the gospel is what kind of gets me in the door and then you move on, right? But but the gospel is something that we trust in every day, that we stand upon every day, that we remind ourselves of every day, and uh, and then we uh, we walk in light of that gospel that we know. Okay. And then we this is kind of where we left off last time. Uh, he says, fourthly now, don't get carried away by other priorities and other philosophies that come from tradition and the world instead of Christ. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Now, we, we talked about some examples of this, and then he goes through. You see all these, all these points here. Uh, why should you make Jesus first place? Why should you listen to him more than anything else? Because he's God, because he's made you complete, because he has all rule and authority, because he's changed you spiritually, because he's united you to himself in his death and burial and resurrection, because he's made you alive and forgiven you. He's canceled your sin debt. He's disarmed and defeated all spiritual enemies. And because of that, he is worthy of having first place in your life and in my life. So he says, don't uh, be careful that you're not taken captive through philosophy or deception through the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. So um, just as, as we get to this, where, where do you, maybe something that you struggled with, or maybe something you see other Christians struggling with, but wh- where is it do you see Christians being distracted today from, from the person and work of Christ and maybe, maybe focusing on other things? Do you notice anything at all in your life or in the lives of other people? Social justice, that's a big one, isn't it? Critical race 
theory. And, and do you guys know that there's a whole, what would you call it? There is a false gospel that has been invented that recasts the work of Christ as primarily a work to accomplish social justice as its goal. Now, is it true that if men and women are reconciled to God and learn to love their neighbor, that that's going to help with racial relations? Is that, is that going to address that problem? Sure it is. But that's a result, one of the many wonderful results of coming to faith in Christ. It's not the primary cause of why Jesus came. It's not the primary reason. Sure, so social justice, that's a big one. What else do you see? Yeah. Conservative Paul. Conservative Paul. Oh, can we say that on 4th of July? Yeah. Are we thankful for freedom? Yes. Do, do, are, are there, is there, is there morality and, and a political process that, that Christians ought to be involved in? Yes, yes, we should be. But, but, but what if we get to the point that a political process distracts us from the personal work of Christ? And, uh, you know what? That happens. That is happening. So, so we need to, as much as we might uh, uh, resonate with a certain political position, and even if we can, hopefully, hopefully we support that political position with biblical truth even, that we don't want that to distract us from the gospel and, and the main message of Christ. Okay, very good. Someone else? Yes, Grant. Keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah, coveting. Um, <laughs> oh my. Uh, yeah, Do we, can we just raise our hand and say we all deal with that? Okay. Um, yes. Yes, uh, I don't watch commercials because it makes me discontent. Uh, uh, we just got back from this vacation. Oh my goodness, I've got a I've got a friend I've got a friend who pastors in Jackson, Wyoming. Can you imagine waking up, you know, to your pastor job and seeing the Teton Mountain Range every morning. I just, you know, and uh, you know I love North Texas, but man, it's flat. And, not near, you can stay a long way. That's right. <laughs> You're right. So, so coveting and right and sure, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. So we need to be careful, don't we? And, and and part of what you know, we're not dealing with the Colossian heresy today, and we're not really dealing with Judaizers today. But my guess is there's probably something in your life that you struggle with, just like I do, that regularly tempts you to be distracted from the person and work of Christ. And that's where Colossians can really help us. Uh, to be careful with that, okay? And uh, all right, so let's move on. So therefore, do, don't let anyone stand in judgment of your faith against what Christ has taught, okay? Look at what he says here in verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So Paul says, look, don't let other people distract you or stand in judgment of your faith in regard to how you're living. And one example he gives here is some of these Old Testament laws and practices that are no longer applied to the believer because they were mere pointers to Christ. And this is kind of where we left off last time. Um, we, we don't know exactly what's going on in Colossians, but we do know there are people there that are saying to the Colossian Christians, you must 
keep the Mosaic law. You must keep the dietary laws. You must keep the holidays. You must keep the Sabbath and, and those, those various uh, laws that we read in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay, And that's what's going on here. And um, does anybody know, what, what's the name of that early church group of people? They were Jewish converts to Christianity, but they said, yes, Jesus is important, but you have to keep the Old Testament law too. Do you remember the name for those folks? They were the Judaizers, okay? And we, we learn about them most particularly in the book of Galatians. We also read about them in the book of Acts as the gospel spreads. Now, when we look at this, what, what do you, what's going on here? He's saying, don't let anyone act as your judge in regard to food or drink. So what that means is there were people coming into the Colossian church saying, hey, Todd, you're not keeping the Sabbath day, man. Um, I, I saw Jack and Susie eating bacon for breakfast you know, the other morning, right? And, and, and they're bringing judgment and condemnation on the Colossian Christians because they see them living in violation of the Mosaic law. Okay, that's what's going on. Now, that raises a really interesting thing. I was, I was sitting over at Grumps with Pastor Terry, our, our, our uh, weekly staff meeting area, uh, and, and, I, and I said to Terry, I said, um, I never realized this, but you know what you're doing in Romans 14 and what I'm doing in Colossians 2 actually kind of go together. And so we had a great little chat about that. And, and so, so here, here's, I, I told him I would do this. So I'm going to quiz you guys on what you've been learning next door. Right, and then we're going to compare it to what we're learning in here because there there is there is a way that these two areas go together. Okay, so um, you, you have you have a couple of columns in your notes, one that says Romans 14, and one that says Colossians chapter two. Okay, you got that there. All right. So what are you learning in Romans chapter 14? What have you learned next door about Christian freedom and stuff like that? Go ahead. Unity. unity, yes. Unity is important, right? Okay. Give me the breakdown. What's what's Paul addressing in Romans 14? Yeah, don't use your freedom to cause other people to stumble. Okay, that's what you guys are going to say? Okay. Particularly what? Your brothers to stumble. Right, that's right. Okay, so, so what's the deal? You've got what what Paul calls stronger Christians and weaker Christians. And probably what that means is there were those with more maturity and experience and those that were more brand new to the faith, right? And just kind of reading between the lines, what it seems like in Romans 14 is that some of those new Christians were Jews, and as they became Christians, they were learning uh, about their new faith, <coughs> and uh, as part of that, uh, they, they would have been keeping the dietary laws in terms of the meat that they were allowed to eat and whatnot, and, um, uh, and what was happening was the, the more mature Christians, the more experienced Christians, were hanging out with the new Christians, and they were not keeping those dietary laws at all, were they? They, they were reveling in the freedom of Christ to eat whatever you want to eat. And so you got these brand new Jewish Christians and they're going, oh, look at this mature guy over here. He's eating bacon and, and he's eating all sorts of uh, what they would consider unclean animals. And uh, so I guess it's okay for me to do that too. And the problem is they had not fully 
accepted that as a freedom that they were allowed to have. And so they would participate in the eating of that meat all the while their conscience was condemning them. Okay, But they were doing it because they saw other other believers doing it and they were feeling compelled by that experience to, to go along with it. Okay, So is that, is that sounding familiar? That's what's going on. So it's in that context, uh, uh, what uh, Nick and, and Carl have said, and, and uh, uh, that we shouldn't, we should be mindful of other people and not use our freedom in a way that's going to make other people go against their conscience and go along with what we're doing. Okay, so that's what's going along. So, so if you think about it, in Romans 14, Paul's really talking to the more mature believers who have more knowledge of the freedom they have in Christ, and he's saying, hey, don't abuse your freedom, don't use your freedom in a way that causes your brother to stumble by sinning against their conscience. And, of course, he gets to the very bottom there, and he says, you know, the faith that you have, right, have as your own conviction, and, um, you know, whatever's not of faith is of sin, right? You have to be able to eat or whatever your freedom is. You have to be able to um, uh, participate in that being fully convinced that you can honor the Lord uh, and if you can't, then you shouldn't do it because you're sinning then against your conscience. Okay, so that so that's the instruction there. Be careful, mature Christian. Don't use your freedom to cause your brother to stumble by by encouraging him to do something that he's not comfortable doing yet. Okay, now now what do you see in Colossians now? Because we we are still talking about maybe some Jewish Christians. We are still talking about what you're allowed to eat and not eat. We're still talking about a little bit of the Old Testament. But what's the message to Colossians? <coughs> okay. Yes. Yes. So we can say in Romans 14, it's sort of the weaker Christians that are being victimized, so to speak. That's, that's, that's the wrong word. That They're being... Um, taken advantage of, that they're not being cared for well, right, in, in Romans. And Paul says in the mature ones, you look out for them, you care for them, don't, don't cause them to stumble by how you use your freedom. But Todd's right. In Colossians now, it's the people insisting on those Old Testament dietary laws that are now condemning and judging the Christians saying, hey, we have freedom to do that or not do that. So now it's like it, it, what were the weaker brothers in Romans are now the aggressors in Colossians. They're, they're, on, they're on the offense now because they're condemning Colossian Christians for not keeping the dietary laws and other things. So, so what does that mean? It means that, that we, we've got to kind of think about how these harmonize, right? We've learned from Romans that we should be careful to not use our freedom in a way to cause a brother or sister to stumble. On the other hand, Colossians is helping us to see that if someone comes along and says, you're, you're violating the dietary laws of the Mosaic law, what do we do? How do we respond to that? What's that? We're free in Christ. We're free in Christ. Yeah. So you see, there's a balance to what we're learning in Romans 14, right? It, it, it depends on... It really depends on where the person is in terms of saying, hey, I think I need to continue to keep these Mosaic laws, right? In, in Romans, they're not being cared for. They're the weaker brother. In Colossians, they're the aggressor. 
They're the false teacher because they're coming in saying, you must do this. You must keep the Sabbath. You must keep the dietary laws. You must keep the festivals, the Feast of Booze and, and uh, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and all those. So, so I, I hope just, just looking at this, this is helpful to see that if someone comes and says, you must do this, um, it is good and right to say, actually, we have freedom in Christ to not do that. Right? That's what Paul's arguing in Colossians. Um, that we, we don't have to do that. And, and it's interesting. What is, what is Paul's reasoning here? What, what is his argument as to why we don't need to follow the dietary laws or the festivals and the new moons, the Sabbath day? What's his argument there in verse, uh, what, 16 and 17? What does he say? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, there's shadows. And, uh, you know, just think about this for a minute. Let's say that, that we're Jewish and we're, you know, Jewish family. We're raising, you know, our kids according to Torah. And, and, uh, and every fall we go get a lamb and we keep it in our house for a few days. And then, <coughs> and then one night we slaughter the lamb. And we take its blood and we paint the doorposts of our house. And we cook the lamb and it doesn't taste very good because it's not real spiced up. And we eat tortillas, what we call tortillas today. They called it unleavened bread, right? Bread without yeast. And we eat in this weird, weird demeanor. Uh, mom and dad say, son, go put your sandals on your feet and get your staff in your hand. And then come to the table. Okay, mom. So you're sitting there eating with your staff in your hand, your sandals on your feet, unleavened bread, these bitter herbs, uh, lamb that's doesn't taste very good, and there's blood dripping down your door. And And mom and dad, you know, you're going, why are we doing this? And then the next year we do it. It's like, you know, why, why do we put lights on our house for Christmas? You know, why, why do we, uh, <laughs> why, why do we do these things? But year after year after year after year, this innocent animal dies. Its blood is shed. It's put over the covering of our house. And it's designed as a training aid, isn't it? It's, it, it's a, it's the training school so that we learn things like, son, our sin is so serious that someone has to die in our place. We learn that uh, God's wrath and judgment is coming. But our ancestors, when, when the angel of the Lord came in the Exodus day and they saw the blood, that marked us out as the people of God. And so we were passed over of God's judgment when he smote the Egyptians, right? So so all, all that is, and you think of these little kids going, looking at the blood and, you know, the dead lamb and, and all that, and then all that's designed so that one day when John the Baptist is at the river and he sees Jesus coming down and he says what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's like, oh, it all makes sense, Right? That's all preparation. That's the shadow, like Carl's saying, 
that, that points to the true Lamb of God who came to shed His blood as a covering for our sins so that the wrath of God would be avoided. And so, so that's what's going on, and, and that's his argument here for why we don't continue to keep the dietary laws and the festivals and the new moons and the Sabbath day. Those were mere points. What about the Sabbath day? Isn't that in the Ten Commandments? Aren't we supposed to keep the Ten Commandments? Not a trick question. Yes, we are. Okay. What's the only one of the Ten Commandments that's not repeated in the New Testament to Christians. Remember the Sabbath day. You say, why not? That's, it was in the Ten Commandments. Well, because what happens is the Sabbath day, as a reminder of God's deliverance and as a reminder of rest, ultimately becomes a pointer to heavenly rest, not, not a weekly rest, but a heavenly rest, when God calls us to himself in heaven. Uh, and if you read the book of Hebrews, what Hebrews explains is that Jesus intentionally changed the purpose of the Sabbath day. You remember that, right? You know, he's, he's walking in the fields and the disciples are popping the heads of grains. And, you know, the Pharisees said, oh, you wicked disciples. Jesus, look, your, your, your followers do, <coughs> they do what is wrong on the Sabbath day. And you remember what he says? He says, uh, man was not made for the Sabbath, but what? Sabbath for man, right? In other words, it's not supposed to be a burden. It's supposed to be a blessing. And in the, and in the uh, progressive revelation of God, the Sabbath day comes not to be a day of the week to do nothing, but a pointer to a day of rest in the kingdom of God one day. So anyway, so I hope I, I put this up here. If you want to write it down, you can't. I didn't, I didn't. Fill it in in your notes there. But so in Romans, we have new Jewish Christians who are being tempted to sin against their conscience and violate Old Testament dietary laws because they see more mature believers doing the same. Mature believers are to be instructed to be sensitive, not use their freedom in a way that causes others to stumble. Right. But in Colossians, we've got a group of professing believers that are condemning Christians in the Colossian church because they do not keep some of the Mosaic law. And the Colossians are encouraged to not let others condemn them for exercising the freedom they have in Christ to abstain from keeping the Old Testament dietary laws and holidays. Okay, so so those two things go together, but they are different. And uh, and not only that, not only is it the dietary laws. Look at this. Look back at the text, verse eighteen. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels taking his stand on visions he has seen inflated without cause (coughs) by his fleshly mind. So what does that sound like? In addition to the sort of Jewish influence going on in the Colossian heresy, what does that tell you about the false teachers? Okay, some mysticism, this idea of relating to God outside of his word. What else? Okay. <laughs> That's right. So so people apparently are saying, hey, I saw this vision. I got touched by an angel. I, uh, I had this encounter. Yeah, Grant? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, they're just saying, I had this special experience, and so that gives me particular credibility. That's right. Yeah, and, and you notice this, that um, this has always been a thing. Um, people for centuries and centuries have worshipped angels, right? And you remember uh, the writer to Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, one of the first things he does is he argues that Jesus is better than angels. And part of the reason he makes that argument is because he recognizes a lot of people think, oh, you know, angels have power, angels have connections with God, and they end up sort of deifying angels and worshiping angels. So that was part of it. Taking his stand on visions he has seen, so there's people coming in saying, hey, I had this vision, I had this other vision. Interesting that the Bible would pull together two experiences, right? The worship of angels and visions. Now, there are two very, very, very fast-growing religions in the world today that relate to angels and visions. Does anybody know what those two religions are? Very good. Mormonism and Islam, right? Are you guys familiar with how Mormonism came into being? Uh, The angel Morani, that's where the name comes from, apparently met with a guy named Joseph Smith, told him to go dig up some gold plates in upstate New York. And uh, that's the tradition, right? It came from this angel, and he had these visions, and and uh, supposedly those gold plates, after being translated, produced what they call today the Book of Mormon. Um, so visions and angels. And then what about uh, Islam? Where did Islam come from? Yeah, the prophet, the prophet Muhammad had visions, and uh, where do angels come into play? Are you aware? Yeah, Ernie. That's right. That's exactly right. He th- he 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 wrote that the angel Gabriel appeared to him, and and helped him to uh, start what we know as the Muslim religion today. All right. So it, it's it's not it's not coincidental that the Bible says, remember, Satan himself disguises himself as what? An angel of light. That's not a coincidence. And when the Bible says, don't worship angels, don't go after angels, um, don't, don't be, be, be careful about visions that people have seen. This is you know, hundreds and hundreds of years before uh, Islam or Mormonism ever came into being. But it's warning. And, and even today, you know, people have these little uh, angels on their mantle and, and they think they bring them good luck and stuff like that. And people, people actually believe those things. Okay. Don't worship. That's right. Yeah, very good. That's right. Yeah, angels consistently do not accept worship. That's right. Now, what, what's this self-abasement thing here? We didn't talk about that last time. What is self-abasement? What's that? Ascetic practices, okay? And you may not be familiar. These, these were practices, and, and different eras of church history, Christians and other religious people have practices. Essentially what you're doing is you're mistreating your body for spiritual gain. That's what, that's what asceticism is and, and self-abasement. You're mistreating your body for some supposed spiritual benefit. You remember Martin Luther w- would go to his room and he would go without food and water for days and he would lay on his, uh, lay on the floor and he would, he would, um, uh, not put on proper clothing in the winter time so that the elements would would, uh, would affect his body. And 
That, that's what we're talking about, the, this asceticism or self-abasement, the severe treatment of the body, so to speak. So apparently there's people coming in saying, I was touched by an angel or I had this vision or you need to abuse your body or you need to keep the Sabbath day. And Paul says, you know what? That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity is about following Jesus and walking with him. Right. And right. Right. Yeah, so what Carl's talking about, one of the theories about the Colossian heresy was it was influenced of uh, by a community called the Essenes, which were a group of Jews who eventually fled uh, Jerusalem and probably made their home on the northwest uh, corner of the Dead Sea. And uh, one theory says that it was the Essene community that fled Jerusalem because of the Romanization of uh, the Jewish uh, settlement there, that uh, they formed the community called Qumran. And uh, what we know as the Dead Sea Scrolls were a part of their library. Okay, So it's possible because of some of their practices that uh, this reflects... Um, an influence to the Colossians as well. So that, that certainly is plausible. Now, come back to the text with me. Verse 19, all those things, right? Verse 19, <coughs> and instead of what are, getting distracted by that, what are they doing? Verse 19 says they're not holding fast to the head, meaning Christ, right? That's the real bottom line, that those things are distracting them from holding fast to Christ from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. Okay? So, so that, that's the bottom line. Don't let those things distract you. Don't let other people say you must do this, you must do that, you have to do this in order to uh, be a believer. Now, look at this. Don't forfeit your reward now by following spiritual shortcuts, extra-biblical knowledge, and unbiblical practices instead of holding fast to Christ. That's our point there for verses 18 and 19. Now, now, remember where this started. It says, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. I want you to think with me about that. How is it if I delight in self-abasement and the worship of angels and getting involved in visions that people have seen what prize am I being defrauded of if I get involved in those things? It's a little bit of a difficult question. Grant, give it a shot. I think that's absolutely right. And there, there could be other nuances, but the, the, the prize is the simplicity that you are in Christ and he is in you. And it, everything's okay. You don't need to beat your body. You don't need to see an angel. You don't need to keep the Sabbath day. You, you don't need to always feel like, I've got to keep doing this to preserve my relationship with God. Christ has completed it. And you know, there, there are 21st century Grand Barian ways that we do this as well, right? Where we always feel like, I just need to do this, or I just need to do that, or I've got to fix this, or I've got to fix that. And, and, and the... 
The beauty of Colossians is saying Christ is sufficient. We don't need to do something else for us to be in relationship with God. We don't have to keep doing things in order to preserve that relationship with God. Um, that Christ has completed it. And, and uh, when others come and say, you need this or you need that, they rob us of the prize of a contentment in Christ alone. I think that's exactly what he's talking about. Okay? So that's a good word, isn't it? That's just a really good reminder. Okay, look at this, verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and the teachings of men? These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So what's he saying? He's saying when we came to Christ, we died to worldly wisdom, didn't we? We died to all these other ways that people try to relate to God or grow as a person or grow closer to Him. And um, so Paul is saying, if you died to the world when you came to Christ... Why are you beginning to submit to these man-made rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And that was probably a slogan. You'll notice it, it, it's in quotation marks in your Bible. And, and that's, a, that's a guess on the part of the editor. But the, the idea is Paul was hearing from his um, friends that were reporting to him while he was in prison uh, what, what was going on in Colossae is that they, they were coming up with these rules. They were buying into these rules, these man-made rules um, that were distracting them. Okay? And um, now look at verse 23. He says, These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self You know, it seems like, man, you know, I'd, I'd be... I'd be much more holy if I just abused my body. And that was Martin Luther, right? He, he thought that the more he abused his body and the more he neglected his body, the more spiritually minded he would be. Makes sense, right? <clears throat> but what did he find? Those of you that know Luther's story, what did he find? Though he, he was a, um, a very, very devout monk and uh, he was very consistent and even extreme in his practices of, of supposed holiness, what did he find, though he did all of those things? He could, never do he could never do enough. And what haunted Mr. Luther over and over and over and over again? His sin, right? The, the guilt of his sin. No matter how much he, did, he um, mistreated his body as a means of growing spiritually, he could not get rid of the guilt in his soul. And that's why when he discovered the true gospel, it was so precious and, and so uh, wonderful to him. Okay, So since you have died to worldly wisdom, don't put yourself back under man-made rules that may appear beneficial, but really don't help you grow spiritually. Um, this is uh, one, of the, one of the words we use to describe this is legalism. Uh, one, legalism means we're making up rules that are not in the Bible, that people say, well, help us to grow closer to God. And uh, Paul just says, don't do that. It might appear wise, but actually 
uh, will not help you. Look at the last part of what he says there. He says these things, you know, they make sense, but they're of no value against fleshly indulgence. They're not going to help you in your battle against sin. They're not going to help make you more holy like Christ. So you say, okay, so Paul, what is going to make us more like Christ, right? How do we grow spiritually? Uh, how do we battle indwelling sin? Well, if you come back next week, we'll get into chapter 3 and we'll talk about that. All right, let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you that we have a freedom in Christ, that um, Christ is sufficient and that we don't need traditions or rules or wisdom or severe treatment of our bodies, that we stand upon the completed and finished work of Christ. He is in us, we are in him, and uh, he will complete the work that he has started. And we can just rest in that. Father, I pray that we would look around our lives for ways that we are complicating our spiritual pursuits things that are distracting us from Christ, things that we're putting our time and energy in that don't really help us and, in fact, move us away from the simplicity of a contentment in what Christ has done. Father, guard our hearts from temptation. Guard our hearts from teachings that would move us away from the gospel and help us just to rest in the completed work of Christ and that as we've received him, we will now simply walk in in light of what he's done. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for our Jesus and, and his sufficiency. Might he truly have first place in everything uh, that we pursue. We pray in his name. Amen.